chapter 8, we're in the first section of Mark chapter 8, we're in the first 10 verses, Mark chapter 8, and we'll see some of that today as far as this looking to Christ, because that is the point of, of everything, everything about, everything in the universe is about Christ, there's a reason for it, and, and um, in a sense, like in Romans, it talks about how we're all shut under sin so that we all need mercy and grace and forgiveness that God alone can provide. So Mark chapter 8. All right, let's pray and then we'll look at this. Oh God, we thank you for this day. Holy Spirit, we pray now for your help. We pray for your illumination. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, illuminate your scriptures for us. Please, oh God, please don't let us be hard-hearted like the disciples we've seen and, and like we've seen in our own lives so often. Lord, help us to see Christ. Help us to be tender towards the things of Christ. Holy Spirit, help us now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, uh, you know, the last, so the last three... Uh, the last three sets of miracles, so the last three weeks, if you remember, Christ left Israel and he went north into Gentile country. Remember the first thing he does is he encounters the Syrophoenician woman. She's looking for, for, her, for somebody to heal her daughter. And she goes to Christ and she talks about bread and crumbs. And so what does he do? He heals her. And then he goes to another place. We saw that last week. Um, the man has an impediment in his tongue. He's deaf. He goes to Christ. Notice they led him to Christ. Somebody brings him to Christ. He heals them. So this is the third of a set of, of miracles in Gentile country. And so after this, he's going to go back into, into Israel and continue his, his work there. But um, So this is verse 1 through 10. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these, these to be served as well. Verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. Okay? Now, here's the thing about this, this, this whole passage. Now, is it not very strange that we have just seen this take place more like a, a, like a chapter and a half ago? Did, did we not remember that? Mark chapter 6, the end, of Mark, the end of Mark chapter 6. So it's very recent. We just saw Christ apparently do exactly what you see him do here. Now, this has led some people to look at this and say, well, clearly there was some kind of scribal error. There was a mistake here. There was something because, you know, there's no reason why Mark would waste space, waste paper to give us the exact same story, the exact same feeding that we had just seen before. And so um, it's almost like, you know how sometimes we kind of consider people that lived 2,000 years ago really dumb? And we're like, man, they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea. I mean, what were they thinking? Giving us the same story? Like, who's going to read this? Let's just go on to the next thing. 
Right? So, so here's the first thing, okay? You, you have to think about all the similarities between this feeding and the prior feeding in chapter 6. There are a lot of similarities. That's true. We have to give them that, okay? For instance, I'll, and I'll give you some, okay? Both feedings are in a desolate place. The, the word compassion is a motive for both feedings. The question, how many loaves do you have, is a question that comes up in both feedings. In uh, both of them, they're, recli- they're commanded to recline. There's a prayer beforehand. The disciples distribute the bread. There's leftovers after the feeding. Then Jesus dismisses everybody after the feeding. And then in both of them, he gets in the boat and goes away. So you're looking at this and you're like, yeah, man, there was a mistake somewhere. Somebody messed this up, right? However, however, now... It's very important, and I've mentioned this before. Okay, the material that, that Mark is writing on is very expensive material. If you look at a Greek manuscript, there are no punctuations in a Greek manuscript. When you, look, when you go, um, your Greek New Testament will have them, but those are inserted by editors. The original manuscripts have no commas, they have no periods, there's no punctuation whatsoever. Why is that? Because these manuscripts are expensive and they're trying to save space. They don't want to waste any space. That being the case, you know that there is a very intentional reason why Mark decided, hey, we're going to put both stories, both feedings into the Gospels. Remember, not everything Christ does is in the Gospels. There's a lot that he does that are not, they're not recorded. So Mark could have just tacked this feeding onto the last. He could have said, well, you know, he fed the 5,000 over here. He did all this. And you know what? You know, he's going to go on and do something later on just like this, you know, a couple months from now. And just kind of leave it at that and go on, right? But he doesn't do that. And so that tips us off to something that's very important. Mark is trying to tell us something. Here are the differences. And this is kind of the important part. Okay, there might be similarities. But are there differences? And there are significant differences between this story, this feeding, and the feeding in chapter 6 when Christ feeds 5,000. That's the, well, that's, that's the, the, the first difference is, is in the first story, how many people? 5,000 men. Matthew says women and children also, but 5,000 men plus women and children. This just says 4,000 people. So the combined number of people is different. 4,000 people. Um, Also, also in the first feeding, there with Jesus one day. And this story there with Jesus three days. The receptacles that they use to pick up the bread. So in the, first, in the first one, they're using something like small wicker baskets. It's a very sturdy material. They have something like that. That's where they go. How many baskets do they have left over? Twelve. Remember that? They go and they have twelve baskets left over. Here they have seven that are left over. But the word that's used for the receptacles they use to pick up stuff, it's, it's the idea of a big net. It's like a big mat. It's the same word that they use for Paul whenever Paul escapes out of the window and they let him down in a net. That's the same word. So they're, they're using different receptacles receptacles all together to pick up the bread. Um, also, uh, the, the, the word for fish here is different than the first one. The, the word here means something like sardines, little fish, sardines. So it's a different kind of fish altogether. Um, and they're also the location. Remember, we've talked about this, wherever Christ is, it's very important to know where Christ is whenever you're talking about the, the feedings. So here he's in, he is in the Decapolis, he's in Gentile country, the first one is in, he's in Israel. Okay, that's the point though. That really is the point. The first feeding, he's feeding Israelites. Here he's feeding the Gentiles. Now, here's the, here's the real kicker though. Okay, if you're still like, yeah, but I still think, you know, clearly there was, I think there was one feeding and there was just maybe some details that were changed by scribes. Okay, turn with me in this same chapter to verse uh, 14. Okay, because this is really the, the stamp of approval here as far as why there is obvious, there are, it's very apparent there's two distinct feedings here. <coughs> 
Christ himself says so. Look what he says in verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you see? Do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, Seven. So here's the thing. What Christ is telling them is that the purpose of all of this, this is why Mark gives you two accounts of this. And I know it's a, it's a very common, this is a very common miracle story. We've all heard of Christ feeding a lot of people, multitudes, with bread and with fish. What's the point of all of that? The point of all of that is right here. He gives us the key to unlocking what the significance of it when he says, listen, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see yet or understand? Right? As you're seeing Christ doing what he does, we are meant to be able to see something. We're meant to be able to understand something. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And he does all of these things. And then at the very end, do you not yet understand? So what is it that we're supposed to understand? That's what this is all about. And that's what we're going to answer as we go through this. Okay, so what is it that we're, also, that we're tr- trying to figure out? Okay, so look here at verse 2. Okay, so in these, actually start verse 1. In those days when there was, again, a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, notice who initiates it this time. Remember in the, the last feeding, you might not remember, but in the last feeding, the disciples go to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, man, we got a lot of people, they're hungry. What are we going to do about this? But here Christ is the one that initiates it. He's the one that calls the disciples to him and he says, listen guys, hey, these people are hungry. But notice the motive of this, okay? Verse 3 or verse 2, he says, I feel compassion. I feel compassion. Now, ask yourself this, okay? As you're going through the scriptures, one of the definitions, the, one of the attributes of God is compassion. That is a humo- that's an enormous, very important attribute of God. Uh, for instance, we know the New Testament references in, in 1 John 4 where it says God is love. Okay, There's that idea of compassion built into love. It's different, but it's, it's, it comes from that, right? Um, also, 1 John 4, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. Right? So who initiates it? God does. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Right? Motivated out of His love, motivated out of His compassion, His mercy for us. Here's the thing, though, okay? When Christ is talking about, and really when Mark is saying this, but when, when Christ says, these are, if you have a red letter Bible, it's in red letters, right? I feel compassion. I feel something for these people. Now, one of the things that would tip these guys off who hear this would be something like, oh, well, well, this is interesting, right? So when we hear about God's compassion, we think of the New Testament scriptures. We think of 1 John. We think of John three sixteen. We think of all these passages, right? Those passages were not written down, though. So they don't have the New Testament display of who God is that they can turn to and say, oh, this, 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 is, this lines up exactly with what you see in the New Testament. They don't have the New Testament, right? So what's their idea of God as it pertains to compassion in the Old Testament? It's the same thing. That's why if you ever hear somebody like, hey, there are two different gods, Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament God, he's mean, he's wrathful, he's vengeful, he wipes people out. And so he's a different God, right? Here's the Old Testament. 
So this is when, this is when uh, Moses is crying out to God and God, show me your glory. Show me some of you. Show me who you are, this and that. This is what the Lord says. The Lord passes by before him and proclaims. He doesn't whisper. He proclaims that. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. But the word gracious there is the same word that you'd have for compassion. A God who is merciful and compassionate. Okay, Isaiah 49 Think about Isaiah 49. Think We've all heard of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. Well, Isaiah 49 is in that same, that same area, the same ballpark, where you're talking about this suffering servant coming in response. So God is judging the nations. God is bringing wrath and, and, and judgment and, and damnation on all these rebels of God. But yet, in the midst of Isaiah, you have the suffering servant come. And that is included in Isaiah 49. And in Isaiah 49, it says, They will neither hunger or thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He, God, He who has compassion on them, will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Nehemiah, the people in Nehemiah, they cry out, You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate. God is, that is, and and get this, the word for compassion, the, the root of that word comes from ancient sources and it means bowels or entrails now ask yourself how do you how do you get how do you get compassion from bowels or entrails like where, where's the course where how do you how does that happen well how it happens is this so it's actually a word that came out of the sacrifices so what are people sacrificing in the old testament the bowels, the entrails, the guts, the kidneys, the organs, the liver, all the, all the guts, right? They're bringing that to the, to the people who are going to sacri- make the sacrifice, make the offering. So the sac- But before they would actually bring that offering, bring that animal to the, to the offering, what they would do is they'd eat together with the sacrificers and the one who were to do the sacrifice. They would all eat together. And so from that, what happened was, is that that word began to take on a meaning uh, that had something like a, a passion or emotion. That's where you get like, you know, your bowels. In the Old Testament, if you, especially in the KJV, it talks about my bowels, my, my entrails, my, my, my we, we, for us it's more like heart. Where does that come from? It's this idea that it's, it's this idea of a gut-wrenching passion or emotion. It's the seat of affection. It's the seat of the energy of the person. That's where that word comes from. And so for God, for Christ to stand there and say, I feel this compassion. Man, this is not just like, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because there, there it's one thing. Here's the thing about Christ. When he takes on flesh, when he comes to earth, you know, it's one thing for me to say I have compassion for somebody. Let's say I see a, let's say I see a homeless guy or something like that. Or say I see someone on television and I'm like, man, I have compassion for that guy. But it's a whole nother thing for me to call some people up, find out where that guy is, buy a plane ticket, go to that guy, you know, sell out for that guy, make a lot of sacrifices for that guy in order to help him. That's compassion, Right. So there's a spectrum here on compassion. But when we're talking about this, the compassion that Christ has, it's to the extreme side of truly I'm going to do, I'm going to condescend. I mean, think about where Christ is before he comes to earth. You can't, I mean, words, words, you, words don't describe what Christ does when he leaves the, the throne room of heaven and the worship of angels and the place of bliss and the place where there's no sin. In order to come to earth. And he comes to earth for the purpose of sinners, rebels, haters of God. 
And so that is the definition of compassion. So when he says, look at this again, now look at this, this word in light of that, okay? He says this. He says, I feel compassion for the people, but notice this, because you, you can err on this extreme here. Because, you know, in our, our culture, it's like, oh, man, God, he, hey, man, God loves you, you know? I know that, that you have no desire for him and that you're living in sin and, and, and that, you know, but, you know, God loves you as you are. That kind of stuff. God loves you just as you are. He, he, and it's like, no. No, God loves us in Christ. And here's the thing. It's true. That, you know, there's a sense in which the common grace kind of thing where God has created everything and he loves, he does love people, right? He does. But you get in a real problem whenever our culture goes to that one extreme where it's all about God is love. God is compassion. God is this. God is that. And then you're like, okay, well, what do I do with the thing called hell? How do I describe that? You know, and they're like, wait a minute. I thought you said God is love. And I can't tell you how many times that comes up. And, and, you know, it's become actually a huge deficit in our culture because it's very hard to evangelize people because they're out living in sin. You're like, hey, man, I mean, the, the wrath of God is, is, is a real thing. And they're like, what are you talking about? God loves me. And God loves me just the way I am. And God doesn't judge and Christ doesn't judge, right? So you have these two extremes. So on the one hand, but here's what's great about this passage. Christ tells us why he feels compassion for them. Look what he says in in verse 2. I feel compassion for the people because. See that word? That's a big word. Because. Why? They have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, here's what's neat about the word remain. That word remain is, is uh, it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a strange word here. It's a rare intensified word that means something like special adherence or special commitment to something. It's not just your ordinary, hey, so-and-so remained at the, the house or he remained over here and that's that. This is talking about a very intentional use of a word that means you're talking about an intensified special commitment, special adherence, special devotion to Christ. And we get that because they've been there three days. I mean, this is one of those things where you don't just come. If, if you're just there for healings, you're not going to stay there for three days. You're going to get your healing and you're going to leave. You're going to get what you need. So Christ, we know, is teaching. Christ is doing things besides these miracles. But you know for a fact, man, they, this is a, and it's also a very uniquely, very rarely does Christ ever have any kind of positive words for a crowd. You know, sometimes the crowd turns against them. Sometimes you have a lot of scribes or Pharisees in the, in the crowd trying to play the devil's advocate. Sometimes the crowds, sometimes they're, they're just there for bread. And Christ is like, you know, you guys aren't after me. You guys are after bread. This is a very uniquely positive description of any crowd. Um, Three days. Now, I want to point out this too. Here's what's cool about this. Christ sees their struggles. Christ sees the sacrifice that they've made. And a little point of application here. Okay, In Hebrews 6, verse 10, it says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. Think of that. God sees... Whenever you sell out for the saints, whenever you sacrifice for the saints, whenever you go out of your way to, to help others, especially as people, he sees that. It's not like God's like, hey, you know, there's an aspect and I know it's very hard for reformed people, including myself. Man, I had a hard time about two years ago really coming to grips with this idea of rewards. You know, because for us, it's like, hey, what do we have that we haven't received? And that's, 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 that is a fact. Everything we have, we've received. 
But when you look in the scriptures, there's also the idea of God is going to reward your labors. God's going to reward your work. That's what it says right here in Hebrews. And I was very blessed by Bob Inc. and by Calvin. And they're bringing up these idea of rewards. God knows our frame. God knows that, hey, he's not, gonna, he's, he's not senseless to the fact that that's a, good that's, that's a good motivator for us. You know, sometimes we need a little boost. And so here's the idea of Christ is seeing what they're doing. Christ is seeing what they're sacrificing, how they're sacrificing. And I know many of you, many of you, maybe all of you, right, have sold out, have sacrificed in so many ways for each other, for the, for the saints, for, for people. And what God is showing in Hebrews, and of course what Christ is, is demonstrating here, is that, that all that work is not, it's not unseen by God. God sees it. And there's a blessing. And there's a, there's a reward, right? Let's, let's go on to the next verse, though. Look at verse 3. He says this. He says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint. Better translation, collapse. It's a more forceful word there. They'll collapse. Now, how would Christ know that? How would he know that? You know how he would know that? Remember we talked about how when he leaves Judea, and, and then he's in the northern part of Israel, and then he goes up into Tyre, and then he makes this weird kind of circular journey to get to where he is now. There's, that was 120 miles on foot. That's how he knows. Man, he knows what it's like to be wore out. He knows their frame. That's another neat thing about Christ. When he comes to earth, it's not like... You know, Hebrews makes a lot of a lot behind the to the to the fact that Christ, when he comes to earth, guess what? He comes to earth in part to sympathize with us, to know what we go through, to know our weaknesses, to know our frame. And so here he's looking at them and he's saying, man, if they leave, if they start taking off to where they're to to their homes, they're going to collapse. And I don't want that. So we need to take care of them. That's kind of nice, right? Because Christ, he takes care of us physically. He does. He takes care of our, our, our needs. He does. I mean, I know that you have the, the health, wealth, and prosperity that's all about that, right? But we don't want to err on the other extreme and say, oh, Christ is just, it's just purely spiritual. That's all he's concerned about. That's all he cares about. Therefore, if you, know, if you need a legitimate way to get to work, and you're like, no, nah, God, I'm not, I, you know, that's, that's not big enough to pray for. Pray for that. You know? Pray for a ride. Pray for a car. You need a car to go to work? Pray for that. Something like that, right? Legitimately seek the Lord's face for that. He cares for us. George Mueller, the, the, if you ever read the autobiography, it's a great autobiography. He's talking about how they're, they're sitting around the table and he's got all the orphans at the table and they have nothing to eat. And they're like, well, let's start praying. And they just seek the Lord's face. Lord, and I think it's something like right when they start praying, you know, there's a knock at the door and some guy comes. He's like, hey, so-and-so just said they had a ton of leftovers. They didn't know what to do with it. So we said, hey, bring it over here. You know, so boom. And, and there's, there's countless dozens of stories like that in George Mueller's life. It's really neat. But the Lord provides. You know, he does care about us. He cares about our frame. Christ is here saying, hey, I care about them. Now, look at this though, okay? Look at this. The, the, the phrase, there's a little word here at the very end of verse 3. It says, some of them have come from a great distance. And you just read that, you read through it, and you're like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, they're coming from a long way. Here's the thing, though. You know where you find that phrase over and over and over and over and over again? It's a reference to the Gentiles in the Old Testament. That little phrase right there. A great distance. People that live a long way. Check this out in 2 Chronicles 6. 2 Chronicles 6 is... Whenever uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple. 2 Chronicles 6, Solomon just dedicates the temple. 
And he says this. He says this in regards to the temple. Now, who's the temple here? In this story, who is the temple? Christ is the temple. Where is God? He's right there. He's the fullness of God, right? Check this out. Six, uh, chapter 6, verse 32 and 33. Also concerning the foreigner who is not from your people Israel. Right? So that would be most of the people that Christ is about to feed right now. They're not, they're not from the people Israel. When he comes from a far country... Okay, from a faraway place. Why do they come there? It says, for your great name's sake. Why are all these people there? For the sake, for the name, for the the great name of what Christ is doing. In your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come for that, when they come and pray toward this house, then hear from heaven, from your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house which I built is called by your name. So the idea here is this. If you don't think there's salvation for the Gentiles, for the foreigners, even in the Old Testament, there is. Same way anyone else is saved. They, they look to Christ. They look to what God is going to do. They look to God's great name. Well, here you have a living embodiment of that. You have Christ who is the temple. He's standing before them. You have people coming, flocking from all over Gentile country. Christ says many of them came from far away. Why? Because I'm here. And when that happens, what's he saying? I'm going to bless them. I'm not going to leave them hanging. They're going to be fed. That's the key word. They're going to be fed. Right? Now, fed means a lot of things. They're going to be fed. Look at this. Okay? Verse 4 and 5. Now, here's here's like the total. This is such a downer here. Verse 4. So, Christ is going through all of this. Imagine, okay, the Syrophoenician woman. When she goes to Christ... She goes knowing that Christ is able to give her bread. You know, she turns it into, you can feed me crumbs. You can give me crumbs. I can, I can feed from the crumbs at the table, right? Uh, the man last week, as I mentioned earlier, he has people bring, bring him to Christ. People know where to find this bread. People know where they can go to get fed. Here's the disciples, though. And this, this is a little, um, really astonishing in a sense, but in another sense it's not. Okay, verse 4, and his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Now that's the real... How strange is this? A chapter and a half ago, we just saw they were there when Christ was doing this miracle. And they, they saw him do that. And now they're like, man, Christ, where are we going to get all this bread? And not only that, but we've already seen, as I pointed to when the, the first part I read in uh, the part where Christ is saying, um, do you, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, when I broke the five loaves. Of, it's like this, man. Not only are they having the, the when Christ feeds the 5,000, they see that. And now they're like, what are we going to do? But after Christ feeds the 4,000, they're going to get on the boat and they're going to start looking around. They're like, oh man, we don't have any bread. What are we going to do? We're going to starve. Christ is like, what are you guys talking about? What? Where have you been? Here's the thing. We look at this and I look at this. And the first thing you think is, how, what, how, do, they, what, how do they miss this? They were just there. But let's remember this. Okay. In our own life, how often does God, in His providence, in His glory, in His majesty, in His perfect way, I mean, we all have stories that are very clearly the hand of God. And then the next day or the next week or the next month, we're like, well, how am I going to get out of this? What am I going to do? Pulling our hair out. I say, oh God, what was me? I don't know what I'm going to do. 
We do the same thing. Um, Adam in the garden. Think of Adam. Adam, God creates Adam. Adam's in a perfect inhabit- uh, habitat. He's, there's no sin. There's no death. God has just taken a rip from Adam, made Adam's wife. He's looking at her like, man, she's perfect. But then the first opportunity for temptation comes along. He bites. He takes it. Within 24 hours, by the way, he would have fallen. Think of that. He just saw the glory of God, right? The splendor of God. Think about the gold calf after God takes him, plagues Pharaoh with with ten plagues, takes him through the Red Sea. They get on the other side of the Red Sea and they're praising God. You know, they're saying, God, you're the best. We'll never depart. We'll never leave. Everything is fine. And then the second Moses leaves for about a day or two, they're like, man, we got to find a new God. We got to do something else here. I mean, that's really, Peter does it. Peter has the vision of the, the, the sheet coming down from heaven, all the animals on it. Then he goes to Cornelius. He sees the hand of God drop on the Gentiles. The Gentiles are proclaiming Christ. Peter goes back to the guys in Jerusalem. He's like, guys, clearly God has just blessed the Gentiles. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Then he goes off to Galatia, hanging out, you know, and the, the Jews come and he's, boom, he's gone. Right? That's how we are. That really is. So it's not, as, it's not as odd or extraordinary as we want it to be. Because I know for us it's easy. We're like, man, you guys are idiots. When we do, we do that stuff probably today, we've already done it. So, um, and that's why we need Christ. You know, that's why they need this, these constant reminders. That's why ultimately it's going to come down to the Holy Spirit falling on these guys. Think of Peter. Peter's about to sell Christ out in 10 chapters or so. Until, but when the Holy Spirit comes and grips these guys, they're still going to make mistakes. As I just mentioned with Peter when he sells out the, the, the Gentiles. Right? They're still going to go on and make mistakes, but there's a process that's taking place. Our maturity is, is, an, it is going on. God is maturing us. God is helping us to be sanctified so that we don't, we don't get in this position as much. There should be progress, right? Okay, now here's the other thing on this verse. Look at this. Okay, notice the number here. Verse 5. And he was saying to them, asking them, he's asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, um, you know, if you study numerology and that stuff, you, you, there's always like, uh, you know, you can, you can, there's, there's, there are humongous cliffs. When you got, you start going into numerology and you're like, oh, seven means this and that, you know, and oh, here's, here's the number, here's the number 27. And that, that must mean this, you know. But here's the thing. It is the case that, that numbers do have meaning, do have value in the scriptures. So the, the, the number seven does, of course. The number seven has the idea of completeness or fullness. Um, here, here's a few things to think about. Okay, number one, Christ is feeding the Gentiles in Gentile country. When you go and you read Joshua, when you read Leviticus, and they, they always group the nations, the Gentile nations together. The names that you hear, for instance, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that those, those names are bunched together everywhere. Well, how many nations are there there? There's seven. So sometimes people look at that and they say, hey, there's something here because these are Gentiles. This is the gospel going to the enemies of God. Um, yeah, maybe, right? Here's what I think there is absolutely no doubt about as far as the numbers go. Okay, There's seven loaves here. How many loaves were in the first feeding? Five, right? Seven and five, twelve loaves. The showbread in the tabernacle. How many, how many loaves of showbread? Twelve. What were the, what were the loaves? What, what did they represent? Israel. They represented Israel because you had the menorah, you had the candlesticks that the priests would go in and they would make sure those, 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 the, the candelabra, the, the menorah was, was, was pointing just 
directly onto the, that showbread because the, the, the light that was God's face, that was His blessing upon Israel. And what we've already seen Christ, what He's doing in part is He's creating a new Israel that consists of what? Jews and Gentiles. God's blessing for the Jews and the Gentiles. 7 and 5, 12. New Israel. There's no division. There's no wall. There's no wall of separation. That's been broken down, right? So this, this idea of God's blessing upon both Jews and Gentiles, that's what, in a sense, that, that number seven is doing there. Now, let's move on to six and seven. Because here we, have, uh, here we have the action. Because Christ is saying, okay, how many loaves do we have? We're in this spot. These guys need food. What are we going to do about it? we got seven loaves. And then verse six, Christ starts directing things, moving things around. Okay, verse six, and he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them notice there's no mention of fish yet absolutely zero mention of fish why a lot of times well a lot of people say that this is because um, you notice the word he gave thanks he also gave thanks in chapter six the first feeding but there's a different word that's being used in chapter six than there is here this is the word for eucharist the lord's supper okay The Lord's Supper is, what do you do? What does Christ do with the Lord's Supper? Well, they sit down, they take the loaves, Christ gives thanks, He breaks them, He distributes. So some people say, well, there's a picture here of the Lord's Supper going on. Okay, and they start giving them to His disciples. uh, Excuse me, Christ gives them to His disciples. Now look what the disciples do. The disciples take the food and they go and they start serving them to the people. So here you have the idea of Christ's disciples going and serving the Gentile. It's a foreshadowing of what the gospel is going to do. They're, in a sense, preparing for this work of ministry that Christ is calling them to do because they're already going and serving Gentiles with with the blessings of God. Very nice. Um, It's kind of neat how the Lord gives us these insights here. Now look at this, okay, verse 8 and 9. And I mentioned the fish part at the end of of verse... Seven, it does mention fish, a few small fish, that's sardines, something like that. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. So it's almost like an afterthought. Yeah, give them some fish too. Okay, verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. They ate and were satisfied. You know what's nice about that? Look at verse 4. The the exact problem that the disciples have is answered. Okay, they have this problem in verse 4. They says, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And then you go down to verse... Eight, and it says they ate and were satisfied. And what the disciples were asking, you know, I, I didn't really hit on this, but really, literally, the way the disciples phrase this is something like, from what source are we going to be able to feed these people? And here the answer is, well, Christ is the source from which they're going to be satisfied, right? Christ is the one. And so you have this idea. Now, now as we get, at, here, here's the thing, okay, as we finish up here. Here's what, this all comes down to, right? What is, this is the question I started out with. What is the point of adding a second, a second very long section on feeding people, feeding a multitude, since it's so similar to the first one? What is the point of all of this? Number one, in part, it goes along with what Christ went into Gentile country to begin with. The reason he goes into Gentile country is to demonstrate there's no such thing as unclean people. There's no such thing as unclean ethnicities, unclean people groups, unclean this, unclean that. What makes you unclean is whether or not you're in Christ. That's what distinguishes you between, yeah, right, Um, clean and unclean. That's all it is. If I go to a person and I'm like, you know what, man, you know, you don't, you don't act like me. You don't dress like me. You don't talk like me. You work at a different spot. You know, I just, you know, we're different people and all that. And you're like, nah, I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't really have anything for you. 
That is antithetical to everything the gospel is about. And it doesn't begin with Christ. This was always the plan of God. This is why the beauty of the church consists of this. You have people from all different walks of life. That's what a healthy church should look like. Different backgrounds, different people, different groups, different age demographics. That's why like like um, like these, uh, these college campus ministries, they're horrendous. Why? Because you have a bunch of college kids going to church with a bunch of college kids and they're serving a bunch of college kids and they're hanging out with a bunch of college kids. That's not the church. The church is made up of a bunch of different groups of people and backgrounds so that, you know what, it's difficult for me as 37 years old sometimes. Carolyn and I, Miss Carolyn, we were just talking about the generational gap, right? There's a difference when you're interacting with people who are different than you. And it's difficult to interact sometimes with people who are different from you, think differently, come from a different generation, different background, different culture, different, you know, different workplace, education, all of that. But that's the point, right? That is the point. These disciples would have had trouble, just like Jonah had significant trouble saying, God, I'm not going to Nineveh. No, those are our enemies. These disciples, they're going to these people who they've been taught and trained from day one. These people are gross. These people are unclean. These are not our people. And you're telling me we got to take care of them? That we have to distribute food to them? That we have to... And of course, the food there, it's, it's bigger than that. I mean, food is one thing. You're talking about spiritual blessings. And think of how ingrained this is. Again, Peter, who's in the crowd, Peter's going to have a problem with this, you know, a decade or two later. He's still going to have hang-ups with this idea. Man, I got to... We're, we're, so so we're, we're really supposed to eat with Gentiles? And God's like, yes, man, that's why I gave you the three visions. That's why you went to Cornelius' house. That's why you fed these Gentiles in Gentile country way back when, when Christ was on earth. Okay, that's the first thing, right? And so, as I mentioned, you know, maybe three weeks ago when we were first talking about this, we, in general, people, it's the way our sinful natures are, there's no doubt there are certain demographics Different, you know, whether it's, I mentioned like the, the, the blue collar, white collar, the, the rich and the poor and the, um, you know, backgrounds, education, all this stuff. And you're like, man, it's, it's very difficult for me to interact with, with, with this group. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, I mean, here's the thing, right? So you can go to the other extreme and be like, you know, all, what am I trying to say? So you have, you have something like critical race theory, right? Where it's, it's the idea where it's like, hey, um, these, these differences are good. These, 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 uh, these, these, these cultural backgrounds and stuff, they're good. And they are good. Okay? They are good. But here's the thing. If it's a hindrance whenever it comes to the gospel and sharing the faith, like Guthrie's in Thailand right now. What do you think he's encountering, right? And you and I, we're in places and we're like, man, this is different. It's usually not as extreme as Thailand or something like that. But it's like, man, this is, this is different. And so the extent that I hold back or I don't put myself out there or that I don't try to really distribute the gospel, the things of Christ to those people, that's on me, you know? That's my sin. So here's the other thing, though, okay? And, and really, again, think of the motive of this, okay? Christ, His compassion is... The same compassion that He has for them is the same compassion He has for you. If you're in Christ, and this is something that's very hard, I think, for me, for us to think about and to really, um, to really appreciate. There is nothing. I mean, think about, give yourself a, a quick, honest evaluation. 
And ask yourself, what is it about me? What is it about me that makes God love me? You know, what is it about me that makes God love me? And whatever answer you just had, if it's not Christ, you're wrong. There's nothing about you that makes God love you. You see that? God's love for us is initiated by His own nature. By His own compassion for us. It's not like, you know, the, the, the whole idea that God looks down the corridor of time and sees you making some really valuable decision down here. And He's like, boom, that guy's more pious than the other guy. So, boom, he's one of my elect. That's nonsense. And I think we all know that, right? The idea here is, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. He has compassion for us. And... We, me, forget that at times. Do we not? We're like, God, yeah, but I have these hang-ups in my life, man. I should be here, and I'm, instead I'm over here. You know, spiritually, I should be, my, my development should be here. And I keep backsliding, I keep doing this, and I keep doing that. There's no way God can really have compassion for me. There's no way that God can really be for me. But that's sinful. That really is. Because if you're in Christ, you have union with Christ. You have this mystical union with God. You have fellowship with the triune God. God sees you as righteous. God sees you as holy. God sees you as set apart. I'm not, I'm not saying that God is pleased with your sin. I'm not saying don't be convicted about your sin. But I'm saying God's love for you, His compassion towards you doesn't change because you sin. If you're in Christ. Because it's founded not upon your behavior or your works. It's founded upon Him and His nature and His work in Christ that He does for us. That's the beauty of all this. When you're looking at this, realize the reason why this is in here for Roman Christians who are receiving the letter from Paul is because they are Gentiles. And they don't know if they're good enough. They don't know if, they're, they, don't know if they make the cut. And how many times for us, because of whatever's going on in our life, we're like, man, God, I don't think I make the cut. You can't possibly love me. You can't possibly care about me. Look what I am. Look what I've done. Look where I should be and I'm not. Look what I haven't done and I should have. So part of this is to say Christ is going to take care of you because He has compassion on you. And the reformers, and not just the reformers, going all the way back to the early church, the idea of give us this day our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and okay, sure, it's talking about material bread. Yes, we need that. we got to eat, right? But they've always seen that as a bigger picture of who God is. Christ says what? I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. This isn't just about bread. When Christ provides food on your table, that's not just about making sure you're, you're fed or He shows up and gives you, you know, I need, a, I need a car to go to work or I need a job and He gives you a job. That's not just for the job. That's so that your mind transcends the job and goes to the one who has compassion on you, who provides for your needs, and thus He gets all the, the, the credit and the glory. That's what all this is about. Why does God take care of them? Because He cares for the Gentiles. He has Gentiles that He's going to bring in. He's preparing the soil. And also, you notice, these people who come from a a far distance, He's going to feed them. And where are they going to go? They're going to go back. And what are they going to do? They're going to start telling people. And by the time the disciples leave Jerusalem and they go to where they are, that ground is already being ready. That's what that's about. And as Christ feeds us and gives us our daily bread and we go out and we go into the society, we go into, into Clovis or Melrose or I guess nobody's in Melrose, Sudan, everybody's everywhere, which is great. Because as we go out, what's happening? We are preparing the soil, leavening the ground like a mustard seed is growing, right? And that's, that's by God's grace working through us. That's the beauty of all this.
Don't just stay here. It's never meant to stay here, right? Let it go out, fly out. Because God is worthy. And then in the process, we ourselves, when we pray, hey, give us this, this day our daily bread, we're saying, Christ, give us you. You are the source of all this. You are the one directing everything in my life, just as he directs this bread. So let's pray and give him thanks. Oh God, we thank you for this, for this day. We thank you for this, this, uh, this, this insight into the, into the person of Christ that even as we stand here today, the same Christ who fed the 4,000 is the same Christ that we are speaking to today and in the presence of today and it's the same Christ who has compassion on us. Lord, help us to believe that. Help us to, to not just read it and, and hear about it, but Lord, help us to truly believe that, that you are the one who provides for us in every way, in everything in our life, everything we have, even the trials, even the toils, even the the things we think we want but we don't have. Lord, we know that these things are also gifts from you because in your, in your sovereignty and your providence, Lord, you know what we need and you know what we don't need. But we thank you, O oh God, that, that everything in life is a blessing that comes from you. The color in the world is a blessing from you. Or we, we so often forget even, even the small things like color and patterns and shapes. And Lord, all these things come from the hand of a, a perfect and and majestic and transcendent God. Lord, help us to, to grasp more and more of this. Lord, we thank you that you do provide for us uh, physically and spiritually especially. We thank you that, that especially spiritually, oh Christ, you, you gave yourself as a ransom, that you suffered the, the curse of the cross so that we as your people won't have to suffer that, won't have to suffer the, the penalty of sin because you yourself have suffered for us, Lord. And we know that that is the expression, the definitive expression of what compassion is. Lord, help us to have compassion towards others and a sincere compassion. Lord, help us to have compassion, especially for your people, especially for uh, the suffering. Lord, give us a heart for them. Tenderize our hearts towards each other. We thank you, O oh God, that you truly are our, our, our daily bread, the bread of life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.